Hi, it's Jill Schlesinger. And on this episode of the show, we're talking with someone who wants to change the image of what a programmer looks like and does. The argument that I make to my students is like, all right, you care about fashion. You care about bullying or climate change. Use technology to help you solve that problem. Any possible thing that you could be passionate about, coding will help you solve that problem. Welcome to the Jill on Money podcast. We are presented by Marcus by Goldman Sachs. Today, we have somebody whose bio is so unique. Her name is Reshma Sajani. She is the founder and CEO of Girls Who Code. That's a national nonprofit organization that is working to close the gender gap in technology. Meanwhile, when you hear the whole story about kind of how she started a foray into politics and then this, it is truly inspiring. Reshma has an incredibly popular TED Talk called Tech Girls Bravery, Not Perfection, and her book is called Girls Who Code, Learn to Code, and Change the World, and, of course, her other book, Women Who Don't Wait in Line. All right, so we are going to be inspired. If you need inspiration in your financial life, don't forget you can send us an email, askjill at jillonmoney.com. That's askjill at jillonmoney.com. And now, here's our interview. You're listening to Jill on Money with Jill Schlesinger. Reshma Sajani, welcome to the program. How are you? Hi, Jill. Thanks. I'm doing great. Uh, We start the show every week with a very important question. And I bet this is going to be a layup for you. All right. Your best career or financial decision? To start Girls Who Code. I knew it. Oh. That's going to be good. I thought you were going to say to run for office, but I thought that would be your second. Ah. Okay. So you've written a book called Brave, Not Perfect, which I loved. And I wanted, before we get into the book, mm-hmm. I just want your backstory. A lot of people may not be familiar. You're um, a New York person. So I actually had heard of your name. Yes. And so explain to everybody why I have heard of your name. <laughs> so in 2010, uh, I was an upstart, I guess that's what you call me. Uh, I ran against Carolyn Maloney in a Democratic primary. Basically before then, you know, my parents came here as refugees. I've basically had a job since I was 12, like Baskin-Robbins retail, like you name it. Stop. Favorite Baskin-Robbins flavor? Ugh, I mean, I love vanilla still. I know. What? It's like lame. Or like Rocky Road's good, but like I love vanilla. Mm, Jaboka Ahmed Fudge, continue. Mm, mm. Okay. So... You know, my dad would always come home at night when I was little and he would like read to me these great like Reader's Digest like binder books about like Dr. King, Mahatma Gandhi, Eleanor Roosevelt. And so I from like the time I was a little girl, like I know this sounds cheesy, but like I wanted to change the world. And I thought that I would run for office and that would be the way. And I thought I would go to law school and I would be a civil rights champion and then I would run for office. Wait, so you grew up in New York? No, I grew up in Schaumburg, Illinois. Okay. So my parents came here as refugees from Uganda. They were trained engineers and it was the 70s. And this country was like desperately seeking engineers. Mm. So my parents landed in Chicago, Illinois. And I grew up in Schaumburg, went to Schaumburg High School. And so I uh, went to law school, grad school, graduated $300,000 in student loan debt. No way. Yes. Ooh, I know. God. It's brutal. So I was like, okay, I'll go to one of those fancy New York law firms. So did you do that because 
You just had to service the debt and pay it off? Yes. Okay. Like, I don't, and I thought, you know, hey, maybe I want to be partner. Literally within six months, I was like, I don't want to be partner. Because like, it's scary to see what the model is of partner when yeah. you're in those places. Well, I also feel like law school does a very bad job of telling you exactly what it means to be a litigation associate, to be a corporate lawyer. Like, I thought I was going to be in the courtroom. Mm, no courtroom for There's you. There's no courtroom. Mm-hmm. And what was, and I graduated in 2002. So it was right after Bush v. Gore. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So many of us thought that originally we were going to go into government and like that didn't happen. Mm-hmm. And so you're kind of left with, in some ways, not a lot of options, especially if you have that much student loan debt. Yeah. I mean, that's a blinding reality. Yeah. So, I mean, you're not going to pursue your passion if you're into in debt up to your eyeballs. No. They're just not going to happen. No. And I didn't. But I thought, wow, that's a lot of money. Like, I'm making at Davis Polk. I could pay that debt off in like a year or two. <laughs> Doesn't happen that Mm-mm. way. Woke up kind of 10 years later, and at that time, it was like everybody was working in, like, hedge funds or private equity. That was like working at Google or Facebook today. Yes. Back then. Yep. Right? And so I got an opportunity to work as a lawyer at some of those firms and hated that, too, and kind of woke up, you know, in my early 30s being like, is this it? At that point, had you paid off the debt? No, I'm still paying. I still haven't paid off the debt. Come on. No, You're I'm a still... famous uh, CEO, published author. No. Mm. All right. I mean, it's like 12, 13% interest rate. Um, you're insane. killing me, girl. You're going to, yeah. Killing me. Yeah. Oh, yeah. my gosh. But I'm realizing that, like, I'm unhappy as hell. And I'm not getting any younger. Right? You can tell yourself things at age 25 about, like, well, I'll do that then. And yeah. like, this is just a moment. Mm-hmm. But when you're in your early 30s, you're kind of looking at your, you know, like being middle aged is like around the corner. And you're like, oh, it's now or never. Like, mm. I can't, like, my dreams could pass me by. Were you partnered with kids at that time or were you still single? I was still single and I didn't have a lot of responsibility. I was helping my parents with their finances. Mm. And so I had a lot of that immigrant daughter guilt. And for them too, like, I mean, the amount of money I made as a summer associate at Davis Polk was like, a significant part of like their salary. Mm-hmm. So it was a big deal to, this was the American dream. This is what they sacrificed and lost everything for. Mm-hmm. And at least that's what I told myself, mm-hmm. you know? And so, but I'm here, I am at 33, you know, sitting in like one of those empty, you know, no window conference rooms, you know, on like 45th or 47th street, feeling like hell. And always when your best friend calls you and my best friend Deepa calls me, and I walk into one of those conference rooms and I just start crying. And she was like, Reshma, just quit. And it's such a simple thing to say, but I was like, you're right. Like, I can do this. I can, because I, I, I didn't, I was really, I was scared at the way that I was feeling. Mm. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like, I was down in the deeps of like feeling depressed and just anxiety and just trapped. Yeah. And so yeah, I, I quit. You quit with an idea of what would happen next, or you quit with, because you said you always wanted to go into oh, public I, service. So I, was there a plan B that was always percolating in the back of your head? Yes. Or did Okay, so what was so that? I think the plan B was always like, I'd want to run. But I think in that moment, I realized that if I, I got to start figuring out what that looks like. And at the same time that happened, Carolyn Maloney was thinking about running primarying Kirsten Gillibrand for her Senate seat. So do you want to just, for people who yeah. don't know oh, yeah, Carolyn Maloney, so like, just do you want to give her a little, like a little bit of her bio and what how she's perceived? Yeah, so uh, uh, you're going to get me in trouble. Um, it, you know, 
she had been there for 18 years. Yeah. You know, she was like an entrenched incumbent, uh, never really been primaried before. Um, she had gotten there in 1992, kind of the year of the woman. You know, it was a, it was a no-no. You do not in New York challenge incumbents. I right. mean, a total no-no. So when the idea first percolated in my head, it was, quote, an open seat. So when I talked to the political class about running, they're like, that's a great idea. Like, you should totally do that. You have an amazing story. Uh-huh. Then when Carolyn decided not to primary Senator Gelbrand, now I found myself a 33-year-old young woman whose name was Rashma Sajani. Bad name. Bad name, right? Thinking about running against the Upper East Side icon, right? Yep. And that was nuts. I didn't think it was so crazy because I was like, wait a minute. Like, I've been active in politics since I was 18. You've been telling women to run. What better way to take over the world than to have all races be women running against each other? Right. And I got some ideas. And you also got pushback from that establishment, which because when they said, oh, it's an open seat. Sure. Go run. Cool. Young, smart, Indian, you know, uh, great ethnicity here. Good story. Blah, blah, blah. Then all of a sudden she goes, "Eh, I'm going to keep the seat. Then they turn on you a little bit. They say, "Mm, you can't challenge the queen. Right. Oh, no. I mean, everybody was like up in arms. I couldn't hire anybody. But now I'm excited and I'm like a little bit like, what? This is crazy. Like no one gets to own these seats. Right. This right? is not, a, this is this not a monarchy. This is not a monarchy or an appointment. Right. This is democracy. And so I decided to move forward and then kind of put together like a ragtag group of friends and people. And we start building this like amazing campaign. Mm-hmm. And I am... Uh, so in pure joy because like for the first time right in my professional career I am doing what I want to do I am that 13 year old wide-eyed girl right who wants to make a difference and change the world um so it's amazing and I think I'm gonna win I think I'm gonna shake every hand meet every voter you're going door to door door to door as doing much a as Cory Booker right and uh people are excited like I got John Legend doing a concert for me like I mean it was like I was on the New York Times above the fold twice. Like, I know because that's how I knew your name because I was like, hmm, how yeah. do I know this one? Because I got the book and I'm like, I know this name. This is so weird. And so then I started Googling. I'm like, oh, oh yes, right. yeah, that one. Election day happens. Mm. It feels good. But wait, going into okay. election day, you yeah. were touted as somebody who could really yeah. make this happen. Like yeah. you might unseat Carolyn yeah. Maloney. Got an endorsement from the Daily Observer, like CNBC touted at one of the top 10 races in the country. I think I raised more money than any female candidate. I raised like $1.5 million. Like, it was a, like, it was a big deal. And, you know, the thing is, when you're, when you're running for office, everybody tells you they're voting for you. So when you would like stand outside the subway, people would be like, I'm like, who'd you vote for? They're like, you, you know? So like, you feel like this is going to happen. So did you, had you been conducting or your team conducting internal polling that gave you different I mean, numbers? We, we did, but we just didn't believe them. Uh, so you knew, so there was num. there were numbers. I think we did have the money to do one poll maybe early on. Okay. And early on it wasn't great. So it was one of those kind of things that we thought we were building an insurgency and like you can't see it. Mm-hmm. Okay. Election night. Horrible. You got trounced. Trounced. Sucks. Trounced. I mean, my husband and I were joking about this, I think, last night. We were, I think we spent like, you know, $2,000 per vote or something. I mean, it was horrible. I, uh, I'm in my 
in this like hotel room in the upper, I don't remember the name of it. One of our supporters had gotten it. My, my field organizers had decorated the whole room with like these multicolored post-its. My father had come down. My best friend from, you know, from high school had come down and we turn on the TV and that little ticker was like not moving past 19% of the vote. I mean, I feel like they called the race in like five minutes. Mm. My dad's like, okay, I'm going to bed. Right. Bye. Bye. He said, I am shocked. I don't even have a concession speech in my purse. I am staring at this young girl who was basically like my intern and who had been with me the whole election. You know, she'd want Rebecca would like go get coffee for me in the morning. And I wanted to cry so bad, Jill. But I, re- I was like, she's going to remember Rebecca. It's going to remember how I reacted in this moment for the rest of her life. And I held it together. That's awesome. And I just like figured out really quickly what I was going to say, conceded to, you know, Congresswoman Maloney. Went to my victory party, my not victory party. Everybody's bawling, and I'm just like standing on the stoop and just thanking people. And then I leave and I go back to this hotel, dark hotel room, you know, and I just cry. And I like how you describe that, which is like you sat on your pity pot. Yeah. You threw a pity party. Yep. Kind of said, I think I'll go hide for a couple of days. Yeah. I think I will, you know, you, I like that you basically say you're allowed to sort of mourn and, and yeah. feel bad for yourself yeah. when something bad, when you have a failure. Yeah. And what got you out of it? I always thought that failure would break me and it didn't. And I was like, oh, like I'm okay. I'm not broken. And I'm, and that made gave me the courage. This is what I talk about in my book about how bravery is a muscle. That made me gave me the courage to start thinking about what that next thing was. I also realized that I was I had never been happier in these past ten months, mm. and that I wasn't going back to the private sector, and I had found what my calling was, and it was incumbent upon me to keep the promises that I made to people that I met on the campaign trail, and like which promise was that going to be? Mm-hmm. That's great. This is Jill on Money. We'll get back to the show in just a minute. Now, you know I am Jill Schlesinger because you're listening to the podcast, right? You may not know that I'm also a certified financial planner. My day job, I'm the CBS News business analyst. And yes, I am your host of this podcast. As we've been saying over the past few weeks, the podcast has a new sponsor, Marcus by Goldman Sachs. Marcus is part of a storied company that's been a leader in financial services for generations. And Marcus offers simple, secure access to FDIC-insured savings products. And that includes a high-yield online savings account that earns four times the national average. Here's a great way to stop complaining that you're earning so little in your other savings accounts. Marcus also offers certificates of deposit, including no-penalty CDs. So how about this? Get inspired by your savings account. Start today to help meet your financial goals tomorrow. You can money. Visit Marcus.com. National average data provided by Informa and accuracy cannot be guaranteed. Marcus deposits products provided by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, member FDIC. And now back to our interview with Reshma Sajani. The title is Brave Not Perfect, How to Fail More, Care Less, and Live Bolder. And the part of the book that is very interesting to me, as we talked about before we came on the air, is the fact that you say that that women 
seem to strive for perfection Mm. and that these are messages that we are imbued with very early on. And I really could relate to that idea where you said, you know, that there are women who would say, you know, I'm not going to apply for that job because I don't know what I'm doing. But then the guy would be like, I'll do it. I don't know what I'm doing, but it'll be fun. Sign me up. Right. So what is it about how um, the messaging about how Girls and boys, what kind of messages yeah. are we getting? And 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 talk about some of that, the part of the book, the early part of the book yeah. where you describe that. Go to a playground and you'll see what, exactly what I'm talking about. Watch how boys and girls play and how parents react to them playing or their caregivers, right? So boys will, you know, climb to the top of the monkey bars, you know what I mean, and just jump. And with our girls, we're always protecting them. No, sweetie, don't climb up too high. Don't swing too high. Give that toy back. That's not nice. Honey, your dress is dirty. Let me go to the diaper bag and and change you. Okay, I love that part of the book where you describe, like, the snot-nosed boy. My son. With the son, (laughs) who's got, like, the dirty shirt. And you look over and you see the girls who are all, like, prim and looking gorgeous. Yeah. And I see that with my son, Sean, ever since he was a baby. Like, I'm busy. He's a mess. You know what I mean? And, like, I call him, like, my little pig pen. But like the littlest thing falls on one of his friend's dresses and the moms are like, on it. on it. He could be wearing like the same pair of pants for like a couple of days. And so think about if you are from the time that you are that 30 months old, you are picked and fixed and prodded. What happens to you as you get older? Mm. So I also think what happens is because we start just, quote, protecting our girls, we wrap them in bubble wrap and we don't want them to fear pain, failure, or rejection. So when they're older and we put them into gymnastics class and they can't do a cartwheel and they come home and cry, we're like, okay, it's okay, honey. I'm going to pull you out and put you into something you're, quote, good at. Mm. Well, we allow our boys to, like, be mediocre. And so it doesn't bother them later in their lives. And it's so fascinating because I think you've got it doubly bad as the first-generation girl. Because the uh, friends of mine who were first generation seem to feel like an extra added layer of pressure, which may not be imposed by their parents. Yeah. It may be, but I'm just saying that it's sort of subtle, which is my parents had nothing. They gave everything up for us. And we, therefore, dutifully must perform. Yeah. I think women of color, I feel this way as a woman of color, like it's all you're always told you got to do it twice as better. You got to be twice as good. Yep. Right. So there is no room for imperfection. Like perfection is the way that you actually, quote, make it. Look, and I, and I think what happens is for girls, then we start becoming addicted to perfection. And like, you know, and so we start giving up before we even try. And you see this in, um, in women when they declare a major in college. So they'll declare a major in college. If they get a B instead of an A on the introductory course, they're out. Whereas so boys good. are like, B, I got a B. That's amazing. I gave this example in my TED Talk, uh, you know, Teach Girls Bravery, Not Perfection, about how a, a friend of mine who's a computer science teacher will say to me, you know, when the boys are struggling with the assignment, they'll literally come into his office and be like, dude, the computer's broken. You know what I mean? <laughs> Seriously. Like the computer is broken. Yeah. It's not me. It's not me. Mm-mm. But the women, I'm broken. What's wrong with me? I'm not good enough. Let's say someone's listening and they say, oh, my God, that is who I am. Yeah. Right. Uh, and, and I have that fixed mindset. I want to be the Carol Dweck ideal growth mindset. Right. How do I get myself there? This book is not about helping you get a raise. This book is about helping you be happy. Because I think the two things that perfectionism is causing is, one, it's causing us to be upset. 
sad, depressed, anxious, and it's causing a leadership gap. So to me, bravery is joy. Bravery mm. is the anecdote. So I think the question is, right, how do I build a bravery mindset? So I'm going to give you three strategies. One, practice imperfection, whatever that means for you. So if you can't go out to the grocery store without a full face of makeup, try going to the grocery store without a full face of makeup. If you, like me, uh, well, not like me, but used to be me, send an email with a typo in it. And I know <gasps> people are like, what? You want me to do what? But the amount of time we spend rereading our emails, putting in five emojis and 10 explanation, point, explanation marks, it's insane. And we're missing out of doing other things. Hmm. Send a semi-consequential email with a typo in it or no emojis or explanation points. Or don't answer your email immediately when you wake up right. every morning. Like chill out yeah. and see the world won't come to an yeah. end. Or put an out-of-office email. I mean, practice imperfection and you'll see that the world's not falling apart. The second thing that goes back to the hobby point is do something you suck at. Not for the sake of being great at it, but just for feeling what it's like to be mediocre. I I love yoga, but I can't do anything like a headstand, like anything. Like I barely can do like child's pose, right? Okay. To like save my life. But I feel good after I go to a yoga class. Well, you just are doing it obviously for Shavasana, which is the way that most people <laughs> are know. doing yoga. Close like, the lights and let me sleep, please. Put that eye peg on my <laughs> eyes and let's go. I like that idea of doing something just doing something. Yeah. And it's hard. Yeah. Go but for it, a walk, right? Like if you think that you, you know, quote, are not a great at exercise, go for a walk. But like do something you suck at or you think that you suck at. Or that you're scared to even you're try because you're scared you're going to you're going to suck, right? right? Okay. What else? The third thing is, is just start. Mm. I think we let so many of our good ideas die on the vine because we talk ourselves out of them. And then we see other people do the exact same thing we thought we wanted to do, and we're left with so much regret and envy. Yeah. That is what's causing so much unhappiness. And so for me, just start. Because mm -hmm. when you've just started something, even though you haven't finished it, you feel proud of yourself that you're on this journey. So, you know, for me, when I started Girls Who Code, it was just buying the URL or telling somebody at a dinner party that I was going to do something. So now let's move into that because I find that to be so interesting. You are not a coder. No, not even close. What did you study undergrad? Let's Speech communications and poli-sci. Nice. <laughs> Total liberal arts. Total liberal arts. Law. Law. And so now you're on the campaign trail, and what are you seeing that sparks something in you? For me, this was all about when I started economic opportunity. Like, it is clear that this is where the jobs are going. Automation is changing everything. And women are, we're at a moment where women are America's, 40% of America's breadwinners. So, like, here we are being tasked with putting food on the table, paying the mortgage, sending the kids to school, and we're not going into the highest paying jobs. Right. And we're having a glass ceiling being created above us before we've even begun. That's what inspired me to start Girls Who Code, is because I was like, where are the girls? The second thing, once I started it, that has kept me going is I've realized that girls are change makers. So like if we want to find a cure to cancer, if we want to do something about climate change, you know, if we want to solve the world's biggest, deepest problems, we need to make sure that women are innovators and creators. And every day that goes by, when you think about what's happening with data science and data sets and artificial intelligence, it's like we are not in the, we're not in the conversation. And things are being produced and created every day that might even be harmful to us. So Girls Who Code, you know, we basically offer free summer and after school programs. 
by 2019, we're going to have reached 185,000 girls. So cool. We will close the gender gap by 2027. Like this is happening. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's amazing. So how do you deal with the idea that a lot of parents are, you know, they're trying to say to their kids, well, you know, you should go do this thing, Girls Who Code. And the girl says, I don't like math and science. And so how do we overcome that? I think the dirty truth about coding is it's actually, it's not like you have to be a physicist. You're not contemplating. There are a lot of not smart coders out there. Right? (laughs) And and so there's a certain amount, there's a drudgery to it in some respects. So can you help people understand that? I mean, look, computer science, coding is telling a computer what to do. It is problem solving. It's about how to figure out how to get from point A to point B. So actually, if you have a legal mind, you would be an amazing computer scientist. You know, so the technical, quote, math science element of it is, I think, honestly, less relevant, right? And there's less, of, and there's not like a direct correlation uh, in many ways of like, if I'm really great at math, I'll be really great at coding. If I'm bad at math, then I can't code. It's simply not true. And I've seen it with my hundreds of thousands of girls. So the problem is, I think computer science has got a bad rap. So when you think about what a computer scientist looks like, it's like some dude in a hoodie sitting in a basement somewhere, right? He's drinking a Red Bull and he's like staring at a screen. So girls are like, I don't even, you know, not only do I not want to be him, I don't even want to be friends with him. Yes. And we've seen that image in Weird Science, Revenge of the Nerds, you know, Zuckerberg, Social Network. We've, we've turned girls off. Mm. I The argument that I make to my students is like, all right, you care about fashion? You care about, you know, uh, bullying or climate change? Use technology to help you solve that problem. And so if you go to our Girls Who Code you know, gallery board, you'll see this. Like these are girls who have built apps to fight bullying or built apps to help people recycle or built games to help teach people about civil rights and slavery. Like it's any possible thing that you could be passionate about. Coding will help you solve that problem. And I think that it seems to me that we're going to have to make you know, reading, writing, arithmetic, coding. Yes, like we really, it's, it's I mean, it's, it's, it's really a, a core competency that we have to really encourage. Yeah. And I get the same thing when people say to me, you know, I, I'm, I'm just so bad at math. That's why I can't deal with my financial life. I'm like, really? Do you know how to add? Yeah. Do you know how to subtract? Yeah. Good. We're on the same page then. You're yeah. fine. Don't worry about and it. And we have to stop doing that. I mean, I, that's one of the other tactics in the book is like, we have to do something technical. I was the same way. Like if my phone went black, or if my son got a toy that was a little complicated, I'd immediately go to my husband and I'll, hey, dude, can you figure this out for me? And I stopped doing that. And I actually have been able to put together very complicated pieces of equipment and fix my own damn phone and balance my own checkbook, right? So we have to stop this because it's all—it's really just this voice in our head that tells us that we're vulnerable or we can't do something. It's actually not true. Mm-hmm. And you just have to try and sit with the uncomfortability of the challenge and not figuring it out right away, and an entire world will open up to you. So we did your smartest financial or career decision, which was starting Girls Who Code. Dumbest financial or career decision? Not learning how to be brave, not perfect earlier. Love that. I am so delighted that you have joined us, Reshma, the founder and CEO of Girls Who Code, the author of Brave Not Perfect, How to Fail More, Care Less, and Live Bolder. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. 
Thank you, Reshma Sajani, for joining us. Go check out her work. It's really quite amazing. We drop new episodes of Jill on Money every Tuesday and Thursday, and you can download the show anywhere you get your podcasts. Apple, Google Play, Radio.com, Stitcher, I don't care. Just download it. Subscribe. Our music is composed by Joel Goodman. Mark Talercio is the executive producer. We are distributed by Cadence 13, and the show is presented by Marcus by Goldman Sachs. See you next week. We'll be right back.